0: All right, here we go. Yay. All right, we have 30 minutes. We're gonna try to get in as many questions as we can. Uh, the last one just kind of flowed real naturally. It was kind of fun. Um, I'm gonna get you out of here right at 1115, so we'll probably stop questions right before then. Um, and we will start with front row. Okay, this is a really easy question. What are the Hebrew words the like that? But the Hebrew words, this is, okay. This is actually not an easy question. In the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter one, verse one, it says, in the beginning, the Aleph Toph God created the heavens and the earth. It's an indefinable word that we have in the English language. We don't know how to translate it, um, but there is some way that God identifies himself as the Aleph Toph God. It's the the Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So uh, Aleph I forgot the Hebrew alphabet. So they, if, you, if you think about the Greek alphabet is the alpha and the omega. We would call him the A to Z God and the Hebrew calls him the Aleph Toph God. So um, it's also the transliterated way of saying ET. I worked in a ministry called 1112 for 10 years. And so we kind of found this one that has dual meaning. So everyone on my staff, when I retired, we all got the same tattoo. There's that. OK. Yes. What is your response to the statistic that the suicide rates for LGBTQ teens are higher in than other What is my response that the suicide rate for LGBTQ teens is higher in Christian households than it is in other households? Is that true? Where is it? Do you have a statistic for me? for sure. Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with I think understanding first and foremost that for generations and generations kind of passed on through through the past what 60, 70, 80 years in particular as the conversation around homosexuality has increased and it's become more mainstream that there's always going to be a learning curve for people especially when you're dyed in the wool of a different set of circumstances in a different culture. And so I think in a lot of circumstances, the, the, the people who are raising st- students and raising kids and raising teenagers that are walking in the world of LGBTQ, um, there's just a, a lack of proper training. They just don't really know what to do. And I think there's, there's obviously responsibility on their part to figure that out. Um, I think it's also difficult because the... Uh, the nuance of uh, homosexuality is is really interesting in the church. For a long time, it was taught that being gay was a sin. It was not. It's it's just it's unequivocally not. Acting out your sexuality outside of the confines of biblical marriage is a sin, right? Like I'm not married, I can't have sex with anyone. That would be. Out, that would be a sin. I would be committing a sin in doing that. The Bible defines time and time again that the, that the only righteous God-honoring union in which two people can practice uh, sexuality and that it, it honors God and it's um, free for them to practice. It's not just free. It's God's wedding gift to a married couple is the gift of sex. But the only confines in which it's appropriate is between a monogamous heterosexual couple in marriage which means that the Bible doesn't identify the state's idea of homosexual marriage as valid. Therefore, it doesn't become a union in which sexual practice honors God. The problem that we have, if you look at the NIV version of the Bible, all these other things, um, is we didn't do well with the nuance of having same-sex attraction is like a trivia fact about someone. It's, irre- it's irrelevant to the gospel. It's irrelevant to salvation. It's irrelevant in terms of sin. It's irrelevant. It's an it is an amoral conclusion. Doesn't matter. If you're a girl and you're attracted to other females, okay. If you're a guy and you're attracted to males, okay. The Bible doesn't really speak to that at all. What the Bible does speak to, just like it would for single people, for fornicators, for people who aren't married, for people who are dating, for people who are in these other situations, that the only God-honoring way of practicing sexuality is inside the confines of a biblical union. So, what has happened is pastors, people like me, have stood on stages for generations and said, um, we're going to try to convince you not to be gay. We're going to try to get the gay out of you. There were all these, there was was a lot of ministries where I think if you ask them at their core, what do you think God's intent is, is that God's intent was that all people would be heterosexual. That everyone, that God wants everyone to be heterosexual. And that's just nowhere in scripture, right? I talked to someone about this after the... um, seminar yesterday uh, about the, um, about the sin of, uh, Ham. Is she in here? Okay. The question was in some, some people teach that because Ham rebelled, uh, that he was cursed with having dark skin and that the Bible teaches that black people have some curse from Ham. This is, I mean, it's, it's eisegetical, it's untrue, it's biblically inaccurate. None of those things whatsoever. It's, it's remarkably offensive. Like, I, even as someone who's white, it's offensive. I can't imagine, if you're a person of color, how offensive it would be, the idea that you were marked with that. Because at the end of time, here's what we see. It says people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, every, every color of skin, every, I think, demographic of, of how you were built, every predisposition you have, it says they're all gathered around the throne, and God glories in the diversity of his creation, That God's ultimate objective isn't that He would monolithically make everyone the same. God's not gloried by a whole bunch of heterosexual white people glorifying Him. Nowhere, I think, for a long time, because the powers that be were heterosexual white males, it was taught a lot of times that this is what it is. This is like the European movement when Christianity kind of hit Europe and kind of began to spread, but. here's the ironic thing about Christianity. Christianity is the only belief system that has had its home base or its predominant uh, people group in almost every continent on planet earth, right? Like the the, the biggest single movement in the history of Christianity took place where and when? Do you guys know? The biggest influx in Christianity, the, the biggest revival in all of Christian history, do you know when it happened and where it happened? China, now. Behind the bamboo curtain, when communism went up, the church went underground, and people had to begin to preach and evangelize in the way that the Bible really more talks about. They weren't in power. They weren't able to create laws to force people into Christianity. Instead, through the power of John 13, 35, they will know you are my disciples, but that you love one another, the biggest influx in the history of Christianity has taken place in China in the last 60 years. Christian missionaries were were gearing up to go into China after the the curtain fell, after communism kind of fell, and they were going to allow Christians back into it, at least to come and preach. And Christians were like, "Here we go!" And in there, what they found is what what started it as in like the nineteen was nineteen forties, nineteen fifties, about one hundred fifty thousand Christians. Right now, we're talking about more than four or five million Christians in just a span of that period of time. Okay, so. The reason that I'm telling you that is that Christianity alone is unique in that there isn't this idea that everyone needs to become uniform in order to be loved by God, saved by God, changed by God, transformed by God, adopted by God. So God isn't trying to make gay people straight. He's trying to call all people into obedience to him. And so absolutely, people with same-sex attraction then are limited in how they can express that. Now, there's there's a family at, at the church that I just came from where they had an, uh, an inter—he um, He was gay, and his wife was straight, and they were married, and they had two kids. You're like— for, for them, that's what obedience looked like. The Bible would still say that is appropriate to do. Other people at my church, they walk around, and they have same-sex attraction, and they're guys, and they're not attracted to females whatsoever. They're attracted to guys, and so they live a lifestyle of celibacy, because being gay isn't something that God's in the market to switch, because being gay is in no terms, and it's nowhere found in Scripture that that is a sin, What is a sin is that for the single person, for the person who's dating someone, for the unmarried, for anyone, to engage in sexual practice is a sin. And since the Bible again and again affirms the reality of a heterosexual monogamous marriage being the only appropriate way to practice sexuality, and that it consistently and consistently forbids the practice of homosexual sexuality— that's not attraction, that's not desire, that means action, that means anywhere from lust to actual copulation is all completely considered inappropriate. For the person of same-sex, for, for, for the person of same-sex attraction who practices with the same sex, for the, for the unmarried, it's all the same across the board. But Christian pastors have gotten up, and because they might be married, and homosexuality is the one sin they don't struggle with, have gotten up, and God, God is coming for you, with a fire and brimstone for you. And so there's been generations that have been steeped in that, and so the nuance of figuring out how to express love and, and to show the love of God to a community that already feels disenfranchised and marginalized within the church, we just haven't done a great job of that. And I'm excited for these next generations as we and our generation continues to grow up and mature and take over the keys of the church that we can commit to doing a better job in that. I don't doubt whatsoever that people in LGBTQ households that are Christian have a higher rate of a lot of those things because it's just, it, it can be scary for a parent. And, and if you grow up, and the people above you that were teaching you were that all gay people go to hell because they didn't understand the nuance of what the text says and what is permissible and what is impermissible. What are you gonna do? You're going to free- if your kid says that they're gay, they're going to- you're gonna freak out. And you're not gonna know how to love and you're not gonna know how to respond. You're not gonna know how to, v- to verify your love for them and to identify them as still your child, even though you're going to- you have this new thing in their life that you wanna work with them through and you wanna talk with them through. I have been very, uh, it's been very important for me as I've watched parents begin to move towards that, the baby boomer generation, that they've started to lean into that and go, okay, let's become more familiar with the nuance of all of these things. Uh, but I think we want to have grace for people who are really uh, struggling in their sexuality, especially those who are in Christian households, who are being told again and again that their, their desirous practice of, of sexuality is impermissible in the scriptures. That's a big thing to, to ask someone. But we don't want to sugarcoat the Bible. We don't want to change what it says. And I think it's going to be good for us to continue to pour in as we become parents someday and we become the future leaders of the church that we do better with that nuance. We help people understand better that your same-sex attraction isn't who you are, right? Like God's called you to something so much bigger than for you to identify yourself completely with what you're attracted to. You're more important than that. Right? Don't, I would never allow anyone that I knew and loved to just simply resort all themselves down to what they're attracted to sexually. Like You're, just, you're so much um, more valuable than that. That might be a, a, a fact about who you are, but it, but it is, in the Bible, a trivia fact about who you are. It doesn't define who you are. It doesn't, make you, um, it, it doesn't cancel out your permission into the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't make you an anathema. It doesn't make you marginalized. All those things are completely false. The church's failure to figure out that nuance does not mean the Bible missed the nuance. The Bible holds the nuance intact. We, as messengers of it, haven't done a great job with it. So I would say holding all those things for us in this next generation, figuring out how to do that well. Do you guys understand the difference that I'm talking about? I'm I'm not affirming homosexual practice as being okay. I'm saying same-sex attraction is by no means in and of itself a sin, same-sex lust is a sin, just like heterosexual single lust is a sin, right? Like if I'm walking out here and I see something and it, 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 I'm prompted to lust, engaging in that or dwelling in that or beginning to take that passing thought and, and, and starting to develop a scenario or an internal mind role play with that is considered lust, and that's not okay because I'm not a married guy. Now, if it's after my wife when we were married, Jesus is like, more power to you, man, like do your thing but it has now become impermissible for me. And so now I bind and I yield myself to the exact same thing because inside the confines of heterosexual monogamous marriage is the only way that, that sexual practice can be carried out that is, that is also God-honoring. Does that nuance make sense? Your, your question is so complicated and it's hard because you want to give, here's a biblical answer, but there's also, there's feelings and there's hearts and there's lives behind the question that you're answering. And I know that as a church, we've done such a terrible job in so many scenarios where we have marginalized people who already feel disenfranchised. And so I don't doubt that whatsoever. Um, and I think that's probably one of the main reasons. We are evolving as people who are coming out of generations of 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 teaching that probably didn't do a great job with understanding the difference between what is same-sex attraction and what is same-sex sexual practices. Um, there's a great book by a guy named Preston Sprinkle, and he is probably one of the most prominent um, writers in terms of Christian sexuality today. Um, and he does a great job of holding up the tenets of scripture in one hand, but also a deep grace and a deep love for the communities that struggle in these situations in the other hand. So if you guys ever get the chance to read him, I've gotten to talk with him a couple of times and he's, um, he's been a great mentor for me in me asking the question, how do I do better with the students in my ministries that are, that are walking through this? And so, good question. Yes. Um, it's good. It's about witnesses. Oh, okay, yeah. go for it, it's super cool. Yeah. Okay. So good question. So the, the main difference, um, what, makes, what makes a group inside of what we call Christian orthodoxy or what a Christian would validate is part of the saved would be that they believe in these five things. Grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed by scripture alone, to God's glory alone. Any belief system that neglects one of those things Is going to be considered outside the circle of orthodoxy. So, Jehovah's Witnesses are different from Christians in a number of ways. Um, You're talking specifically about the refusal for dialysis or blood transfusions because they they think it's wrong to intermix different kinds of or different people's bloods. Um, Clearly, God has, as I talked about before, God has, oh, no, this was the last one. This wasn't the seminar before. God is the basis for all modern science. He creates the stability of a world in which we're able to measure things, and we've got Planck's constant and Avogadro's number and the speed of light and the force of gravity. They're all being sustained by him. So th- the idea of rejecting science or something that can help you on a grounds of some Old Testament thing, for me, as long as it's not inside the realm of what is sinful, they're talking about what's called a ceremonial law or a separation law, which Jesus fulfilled and then did away with, right? Like we can eat pork, we can... Uh, get tattoos. We can get our ears pierced. Those are all things that would be impermissible for them. At its core, Charles Taze Russell is the one who wrote the New World Translation of the Bible. Or the, he, the and he was put on trial because he didn't understand languages. He didn't understand biblical languages. He was put on trial in front of a group for fraud, and he was asked to recite the Greek alphabet, and he couldn't do it. And yet he claimed to be the one to interpret the, the, the original Greek into the um, New World Translation of the Bible, and he just fundamentally messed it up. He just didn't do it. He he, at at best he made a mistake, and at worst it was fraudulent. Like if you take John chapter one verse one, which we were studying, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made." Charles Taze Russell, who doesn't know, speak or understand biblical or coin Greek. When he rewrote that in the New World Translation, he took out the Han-Tan-Theons and he replaced the definite articles with indefinite ones. So in the Watchtower Translation, it says, in the beginning was a word and a word was with God and the word was with God. But it it, it tries to make Jesus less than God. So he changes the language of it. And any system that starts to do that, I'm not gonna be able to defend their idea with transfusion dialysis because they fundamentally believe that they are... Um, they don't understand the scriptures. So the fact that people are dying because they're refusing to get blood transfusions as a Christian, that's like fundamentally flawed. Like, don't do that, you know? Like, pray for sure. If you've got cancer, pray. And if the doctor's like, we can remove it with a simple surgery, like, get the surgery, you know? Like, for sure, pray, call for healing, all that stuff. We see again and again in scripture where even when Jesus goes to heal people, he also gives them prescriptions on what to do, and sometimes the most miraculous thing that God can do is he gives us modern science in order to work with the healing of our bodies. It's phenomenal. So don't reject science because of that, but we reject Jehovah's Witness teachings for a number of reasons that are more significant than that when you talk about religious and spirituality. Uh, Someone had their hand up over here previously. Yes. Yes. If God knows he's going to be a murderer and a rapist, why would he let that happen? Is that your question? Let me give you one, a biblically terse answer, and one, a more thoughtful, provocative, philosophical answer. The first one is, raise your hand in here if you're a murderer. Okay, good. Yeah, it's all of us, okay? We're all murderers. And you think to yourself a number of different things. You might go, no, 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 no. I was never convicted. It's like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. (laughs) What I'm talking about is that twofold. Number one is when Jesus comes to fulfill the law, he doesn't just fulfill the law. He doubles down on the fulfillment of the law. He says, you have heard it said that if any of you sleep with a woman who isn't your wife, you've committed adultery. But I tell you, If you lust after a woman in your heart, you're already guilty of committing adultery. Jesus moves the sin from the action, which is also sinful, to the intent of the action, to the dwelling on of it, right? That's like to see, to look at pornography and go like, well, I didn't touch her. I didn't do anything. I just lusted after her. Jesus says, "No, that's you don't understand it. Out of the heart a man is justified, and out of the heart a woman is condemned. It's not just what you do; it's what you think and what you." Secondly, the book of James makes this really clear. If a man stumbles in any part of the law, he's guilty of breaking the whole thing. So, in the sight of man, you're right. In the sight of man, we can look at someone who's a murderer and someone who does all these things, and we can make these judgments on, oh, this person's a lot worse than this person is. And absolutely, in the Bible, there are way different ramifications for people who commit murder and those who punch a cat with a stick. You know what I mean? Like, they're not the same thing. However, I think to immediately jump back and go, why doesn't God just eliminate the evil in this world? The issue with that is where would he have to start? We sit in a really weird position where we go, why doesn't God take out all the murderers? Why doesn't God take out all the bad people, all the evil people? And in doing so, we've rejected what Romans chapter 3 says. There was no one right with God, not even one. None of us seek after God. We have all sinned in what we've said, done, the attitudes that we have had. When we open our mouths, we breathe out venom like poisonous snakes. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one can do right by him. So when people go, why doesn't God eliminate all evil? I always ask the question gently, but also with a little bit of a sting. Do you think he would start with you? Now, if you're talking about the idea of foreknowledge, you can go, okay, okay for, sure, for, sure, for, sure, for sure. But like, these guys are killing people. He should stop them. Let me ask you, I'll give me my philosophical answer. And here's what it is. What is the greatest desire of God for mankind? What's his ultimate objective? Does anyone know? Why do you, why do you breathe? Why are you here? Yeah. Okay, good. What catechism, is, what catechism is that? Catechism is that? Yeah. Yeah. And it says the, the chief end of man is to what? And glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What? <laughs> You're from the same church? All right. All right. Got it. Good. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Where do we find that in scripture? Anyone know? Where does the Bible say that the chief end of man is to glorify God? Okay, good. Isaiah tells us that the reason that we were created was to glorify God. John chapter 17, um, and, and, and in those sections where Jesus is praying on behalf of us, he says that uh, I, I would that all men know me. Paradise is this, to know the Father. True heaven, true reality is this, that they would know me and the one, that, and, and the one who has sent me. So I ask you this question then. If the chief end of man is that the most amount of people would be saved and come into a knowledge and glory of God, what if the dial of evil on planet Earth is so perfectly set that the most amount of people would be reaped for the kingdom of God? What if the dial of evil, if any less set, if any less intense, would cause way too many people to believe that we live in the utopia right now and we don't yearn for anything else? Do you know how much more I want to go to heaven right now than I did a year and a half ago? I don't think you, you could possibly understand. I remember being, like, two years ago, and people would pray. My dad used to pray this prayer. He's a pastor, and he would pray before every sermon. He would say, come, Lord Jesus, quickly. Many of us are waiting for you, and not one of us who knows you will be disappointed when you return to get us. And I used to be like, stop praying that, you know? Like, I got things I want to do, you know? I want to see my kids get married. I want to have grandkids, you know? I want to go to Hawaii, and (laughs) it's like, these are things that I want to do. Then you watch your wife descend into mental illness and death, and then you just go, like, come, Lord Jesus, quickly. Like, frick this world, man. Just get me out of here. I just want to be with Jesus. Now, in the meantime, we got a mission. we got people who don't know Jesus. I want to bring as many people with me as possible. So I'm not going to put my head in the sand and wait till I die, because that would be the most selfish thing I could do. I want to bring as many of us with me as I can. I want us that all men would know. But what if the dial, if it was any less set, if there was less evil in the world that we would all walk around and go like, this is actually great. Forget death, forget heaven, forget God. I don't need, we don't even need salvation because people aren't really bad people. We're all pretty good people. We already have this problem in our world. We'll talk about it pretty intensely tonight. And what if the dial of evil, if it was any more intensely set, would cause people to have complete hopelessness or this understanding and this idea that there couldn't possibly be a loving God in the middle of all this, which some people still already have the problem of. So I ask the question, what if the dial of evil is set so perfectly that the most amount of people would come into saving faith with Jesus, which is the ultimate chief end of God creating mankind? I have to believe that's the case. I have to believe that the reason that he doesn't stop certain things or do certain things or prevent certain things or do away with all bad people is because he's got a will and a reason and something behind it that I just don't get. I do know that I think one day when I get to heaven and I see God face to face, I won't question a single thing that he's ever done because I will see the glory of heaven. I will see the justice of God. I will see the power of sin and what it has done to certain people. And I will just simply say, you're good, good God. Now in my broken mortal flesh, I can make judgments about God. That wasn't nice. You should have stopped that. Like, really? I mean, like a kid walks into a school and shoots 16 people. Could you not, I mean, can the gun jam? Can the kids run? Can the police go inside? Can something, can you do something about it? But again, I feel like a blind referee on a football field chucking flags around, calling things right and wrong, and the Bible makes it really clear, Chris, you don't know what the heck you're talking about. And I think if I was able to see the, the chief will of God and the end and his secret will that he hasn't revealed to me, and I saw the way that events were playing out, I would step back and go, I get it. This, is, this, this hurts, but I get it. And that's kind of the place that I have to go to. I think that's the, a philosophical answer that I think is really intriguing. Um, we have five minutes, so maybe one more. Yes? When reading the Bible in English specifically, when reading the Bible in English specifically where else, you? how else do you read it? I can't speak Hebrew, so I don't read Hebrew. Oh, okay. So you just mean when people read the Bible. You're not asking me when I read the Bible. Me. When you read, Bible. you read the Bible. If you read the Bible in English, do you read the Bible in English? Yes. Okay, so when you read the Bible in English. How do you tell the difference between poetic writing and non-poetic writing? Okay. It wasn't between poetic writing, there's actually a lot more categories than that. There's apocalyptic literature, there's prophetic literature, there's wisdom literature, there's historical literature, there's all that stuff. Um, You probably would need to get a pretty basic understanding of, um, the Bible doesn't tend to flow in and out of it in like a chapter, right? It doesn't go like, the beginning of the chapter is like, God went down to Galilee, and there were shepherds living out in the fields. It doesn't like jump in and out of that, but like the wisdom literature, you can start to read that. The real answer to your question is that's going to require a little bit of study on your part. Um, Most of the time, you can just read it and understand. Like, if you get to the book of Psalms, and you say, and it says, um, Uh, Psalm 22, we read it yesterday. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They encircle me. They, they, the lions open their jaws wide against me. This isn't a guy talking about his experience on Tuesday. This is a guy talking about the state of the world. He's using poetic language. So, um, I would say a, a basic exegetical commentary is going to give you that. Um, that, I would, that I, almost all, I would recommend studying with. If you want a really good one online, whenever you open up scripture, I think what, what was really helpful for me early on, there's a guy who wrote a, um, a commentary called Enduring Word. Here's all you have to do. When you open your Bible, and you're going to read Mark chapter 16, that's where I am, you just Google Mark 16 Enduring Word, and this guy named David Guzik, he kind of walks you through the passage, and then he gives you a lot of different commentaries on what people think this passage means, and it's going to always have stuff like this is, um, apocalyptic. This isn't supposed to be taken literally. There's not a seven-headed dragon coming for your family. So um, that's what I would say is, is probably the best way of knowing. It doesn't say it in the page. It doesn't go, here's poetry. Um, so you, you got to kind of do your research on that one. Good question. Last question. Yeah. How Christians react to abortion? Where stand? <laughs> Great two-minute answer. Okay. Okay. Um, It, can I ask you a question in response? Why is lying wrong? Why is deceit wrong? Why are they, what do the Ten Commandments show? What are they a demonstration of? Why do the Ten Commandments exist? Why is, take one of the Ten Commandments. Why is, um, why is coveting something wrong? Why is adultery wrong? So? Why is it wrong? Why does God call it wrong? What is right? That's a big question. What is right? Okay, why does the Bible say what's right and what's wrong? Have you heard of Euthyphro's dilemma? Okay. Why is murder wrong? It takes away life. Okay, let me ask you a question Why is life good? Let me ask it in this way and see if you can catch up my pattern. Why is truth good? Why is life good? Okay, it's all for the glory of God. Good. What is good in our world is what aligns with the character of God. What is bad in our world misaligns with the character of God. When is something good? When it is like God, when is something evil, when it is not like God. It's that simple. You don't need to overcomplicate things. Why is murder wrong? Because God is life. Why is lying wrong because God is truth? Why is coveting wrong because God is generous? Why is uh, adultery wrong because God is faithful? When we, as people, we are image bearers of God, when we fail to bear God's image appropriately, we have deceived the world around us and said, God is perhaps different than you thought he was. So when we do the very things like murder and deceive and we are covetous, we are demonstrating as image bearers that maybe God is like these things too, which he's not. God hates being misrepresented. That's what we call sin. Sin is any thought, word, action, attitude, or deed that says God is like this when he's not. And I would say John fourteen six makes it really clear that our God is a God of life. Abortion is wrong because it misrepresents who God is because God is a God of life. Now, inside of that, there's a thousand pieces of nuance to help us understand that there are women in situations and extenuating circumstances and all these other things that need help, that need support, that need all these other things. And we, especially as a church, should lean in and be more than anything present and active in all of those things. But I think you start, if, if there's a house on fire and your kid is hungry for a sandwich, both things need to be addressed. But I think we start by stopping murder. And then we move to go. Okay, now that that's done, now let's throw all of our resources into helping these different things. Most people, when you ask these, when when we have this conversation, even in a debate, this is very common to be brought up against Christianity. And someone will say, "Well, what about cases of rape? What about cases of incest?" That amounts to less than half of one percent of all those things. Ectopic pregnancies are not abortions. The Bible is not against them. If it's going to threaten the life of the mother, the Bible is not against it. And these are the this is what we call straw man argumentation. It throws out these sound bites and these extremes, and it says, how do you do with these in principle? A, ectopic pregnancies that are going to threaten the life of the mother is never, ever done away with. It is not considered a sin to do that in that case, because that would be a, a procedure that is preserving the life of the woman, and that is not wrong whatsoever. Secondly, if you want to throw out the, what about the incest and about the rape things, I always ask people, okay, so if we permitted abortion in those situations, would you then consider all the other abortions wrong? No one ever says yes. So they're not really arguing through principle for the principle. They're arguing through principle to justify everything else. So why is abortion wrong? I think the Bible makes it very clear that God alone gives and takes life. And in except for extenuating circumstances in the Old Testament, when it was for the preservation of his people that other people were going to be taken out. Like when uh, someone goes off to war and they fight for their country, we don't we don't call that murder, right? For sure they have killed people, but we don't put them on trial for murder because it's it's... There is a justification for what they're doing. It's God saying, this is the brokenness of the world, and this is what I want to do to fix it, and it's not my ideal plan, but here's what it is. Abortion doesn't fall under that. Um, so, again, there's a thousand levels of nuance to figure out what we do in response to those things, but I think we start with the most egregious thing, which is we stop the, um, the innocent murder. of. Ch- and again, you guys, you need to understand this. No one in the scientific community now argues if you're killing a life or not. That was the argument when I was, when I was your age. The argument was, is it just a lump of cells, or is it a human? That's not the argument anymore. I just need you guys to understand that. No one argues that anymore. We now can understand that at the moment of conception it is a genetically unique life inside of the body. So when someone says, my body, my choice, you go, for sure, I agree. That's not your body. You have a body inside of you, right? And if you say, it's my body, my choice, It's not. How many toes do you have? 10, how many fingers do you have? 10, when you're pregnant, how many toes do you have? 10, you don't get 20, (laughs) I now have two hearts. No, you have a heart and you also, in this miracle of God, are growing a life inside of you. The question now is infanticide and I think you guys really need to understand that. At the highest peak of philosophy where people are having these conversations, they're not talking about whether or not it's human, they're talking about whether or not a woman has the right to delete the life of someone up to the age of... This one guy named Steven Pinker said, if a woman gives birth and she feels like she can't take care of it as long as the child is uh, dependent on the mother, that you can kill up to like two years. That's crazy. Could you imagine that? There's a woman, Melissa Drexler, who gave birth at her senior prom and took her baby into the bathroom, choked it with the umbilical cord, and threw it in the trash can. It's a true story. And the response to this is that people said that's kind of... That's just her right that she has. So you guys have have to understand, the argument is not as simple as it used to be. The the question is no longer, is that a life or is that not a life? It is a unique genetic code. That is what we define as life, right? Like, if you found an eagle egg and you destroyed it and it wasn't fully formed, no one would be like, oh, you didn't know, right? Like, you go to prison for that. That's not the question. The question is, does the woman have the right to eliminate life if it is in some way going to... Um, interfere with something in her life that she feels like would give it a lesser quality of life. And these these are good questions. How do we give a better quality of life? I think the church needs to step in and be that for those women that are in need, but I don't think the solution is to do something that is against God's will in order to accomplish that. I think we need to hold both those things in tension. What's the perfect solution to that? I don't know, but I do think we start with eliminating what we understand is to be against God's will, which is abortion. That, that's what I think the biblical stance is. That's the Christian Orthodox stance on it. And how we play out that nuance, we as a church, especially with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, we better step the heck up then and say, how do we get more involved? How do we help? How do we bring people into that? Um, but I think that's the, the answer to that question. And that's what I would say is that the biblical response is if God is a God of life, then he alone gives and takes, uh, except in situations where he's called us through his own judgment to um, wield, like Romans 13 says, the power of the sword. Word? Thanks for that very complicated question. <laughs> okay, get me out of here.